0: A Podcast One production.
1: There's three ways to make change. One is to be a billionaire like Bill Gates who can, you know, move mountains with their wealth. And I don't think anyone listening is going to be one of those. The other is to to get into government and be someone who has a lot of influence in government. And the third way is to be one of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals who make a very small change in what they're doing every day which when you add that up over millions and millions of people leads to a very big change.
0: I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe as well as 11 of the top ASX listed companies. And this is Fast Track. about to talk to a person who sat on a toilet for 50 hours till he got his own way. And he's not a spoiled brat. Actually, he's quite the opposite. He's given away millions of dollars and you're probably intimately familiar with his product. Simon Griffiths is the co-founder and CEO of Social Enterprise Who Gives a Crap, a toilet paper company that builds toilets in the developing world. Since its launch in 2012, the company has tripled in size. Simon is also a prominent social entrepreneur with his work covered by the Huffington Post, MTV, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. He's done TEDx Talks and his regular keynote speaker, including the upcoming Australian Association of National Advertisers with Julia Gillard and Adam Goods. He's even been shortlisted for the Young Australian of the Year. Simon, it's my absolute pleasure to speak to you on Fast Track today. I'm intimately familiar with your product, Who Gives a Crap? It arrives at our house with many rolls of colourful toilet paper proudly shown around our house because we feel like we're contributing. So tell me, what was the catalyst for you to become a social entrepreneur?
1: First of all, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I think the um, catalyst for all three founders was a little bit different, but we really rallied around this—you um, know, this this number—the the, the two point four billion people globally that didn't have access to a toilet. And I think you know, there's a lot of social problems out there in the world, but this one really struck us as something that was um, important and um, unfortunately interesting because it wasn't improving very quickly. You know, back in 2010 when we got started, sanitation was the most off track of all of the development goals that we had because it's a bit icky and gross and people don't want to talk about it. And that was exactly what attracted us to it. We saw that there was this opportunity to sell toilet paper, a product that we all need to, and use the proceeds to help people in need and at the same time start to have a conversation about this very serious issue that people weren't talking about. And so that was kind of the, the quarter second epiphany I had one day walking into the bathroom. I saw a six pack of toilet paper, said we should use you know half of our profits to help build toilets and call it who gives a crap. I called three friends and the third friend said, I want to start this with you. And that's how we got started. So Jayhan became the first co-founder and we went from there.
0: What an incredible epiphany to have on your way to the loo. I think that's uh, pretty extraordinary. Why the pull to NGOs at such a young age? I know you're part of a generation where this is much more familiar than any time in history, but why the pull at such an early age when you've got an engineering degree and a commerce degree and most people I know who exit those double degrees are busy building their careers you just went off and wanted to do something for others.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I tried working as an engineer and and was like, oh, yeah, I could do this, but it's not didn't really kind of click for me. I tried working as an investment banker and sort of had the same experience and then, you know, went and and got a a job offer from a management consulting company thinking, well, maybe that's the one that's going to work. And when i got that job offer i kind of reflected and said hang on if i haven't enjoyed working as an engineer or an investment banker like is this third job really going to be that different and what i realized was that in both of the jobs prior i could do the work but i was only about 70 percent as effective as what i could you know be if i was working on something that i really cared about and was passionate about and so for me it felt like it wasn't a good use of my time because I was not able to kind of unlock that extra 30% and give everything that I had. And so um, I think it's probably important to acknowledge that, you know, that view, that's an incredibly privileged view to be able to have. You know, I was born in in Australia, I'm, I'm a white man, so I've had a lot of privilege. And to be able to sort of reflect on what I wanted to do for my career and realize that I had this opportunity to unlock 100% of my potential, That's something that most people globally don't have. And so I was able to go on this journey to find my potential and then realize that what I really cared about was actually helping all of the other people in the world who you know, need to get a toilet before they can actually unlock their potential because there's a lot of other things that are holding them back. If I could help to unlock that potential in the billions of people globally that don't have that opportunity, then the world would be a very different place full of creativity and hopefully lots of new crazy businesses like ours.
0: <laughs> yeah, fantastic. A lot of people don't realise that privilege is about actually the ability to quest after our goals rather than just quest after our basic needs.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if I was born in a different, you know, a different country in a a different suburb, if I looked different, that might not have been a privilege that I could have had. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's incredibly exciting to, for me to think about you know, the, the extra benefit that I got from unlocking that potential. And if, if I can help anyone else do that, then you know, let alone hopefully many thousands of people, that's going to be an amazing amount of impact to have.
0: You mentioned you had the privilege and the time and the space or the journey. What was that about? Did you have people who were supporting you or did you go off and do courses? What was that part of the journey that you unlocked?
1: Yeah, so I, I was really lucky. Um, I uh, I kind of throughout my university degree, as you mentioned, it was a double degree, so I was there for a long time. I worked really hard all semester in paid jobs, not that hard at university, and then saved up enough money to to spend the holidays in Southeast Asia. Because as a good economist, I figured out it was cheaper to go to Southeast Asia than it was to stay in Australia with my family. And so um, throughout my degree, I spent a lot of time in different parts of the developing world, and I was you know, volunteering or um, traveling or doing different bits and pieces. And that was sort of when this passion for, you know, development economics really sort of got sparked, I guess. And so when I eventually kind of, you know, said the corporate world's not for me, it was this realization that I actually wanted to work on, you know, development problems and this social mobility issue, um, which was what I find really fascinating. And so I ended up turning down that job and using the savings that I'd had from, you know, the the small amount of work that I'd done prior to move to South Africa. And I worked with a development aid organisation over there and then really kind of catalyzed this idea of, you know, development economics is great. I care about these outcomes, but I have a skill set that's based around building businesses. And so if I can build businesses to achieve the social outcomes and allow organisations who typically rely on philanthropic funding to not just rely on the philanthropy market which is relatively capped it's very hard to increase the philanthropy market instead i can get them to be able to tap into the trillions of dollars that change hands in our economy and and therefore increase the pool of funds that's available to them then the amount of impacts that that could have is massive and so for me that was like this realization of that's what i'm passionate about i want to go and build the future of what i think capitalism should look like and show that there's a new capitalism out there that i think makes a lot more sense
0: and have you had people come to you inspired by that, building other businesses based off this model and the success of the model?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, we're super excited when we see other businesses adopting similar similar models. So um, there's one in Melbourne that we love called The Dirt Company, who make laundry that's, you know, environmentally friendly. It's plant-based and hyper-concentrated, so it has less packaging and also donates 50% of their profits, which was inspired by us. So... We love kind of, I think they just made a $40,000 donation, which was their first big donation after a couple of years of getting started. So seeing other companies adopt our model and scale their businesses based on what we've done is just a a massive, you know, inspiration.
0: Tell me about your year. 2020 has been a bit of a ride for most of us. You do toilet paper. (laughs) We know that uh, a lot of people decided that that was a, a critical item to have.
1: What's your year been like? Yeah, who would have thought, you know, 2020, the hot, the hot product being toilet paper, I think no one expected that. Um, It was quite interesting because we're, you know, we're a direct to consumer business. So we sell online and deliver direct to people's doors. We also have a remote team. So in many ways, 2020 was the year that we'd spent, you know, the the six or seven years prior really training for. Um, And so I think, yeah, it's been quite a quite a crazy year, both at work and outside of work, fair to say. You know, at the start of March, we saw our daily sales double and we're like, oh, this is interesting. And then the next day they, you know, went up 5x and we saw on social media that our customers were just telling everyone about us as, you know, toilet paper shelves started to empty out in supermarkets. And so we went viral the next day, you know, 12 times a regular day of sales. It looked like a 30 to 40 times day of sales the day after that. And we had to move our site to sold out to protect, you know, stock for our subscribers and our businesses that we want to make sure never run out of product again. We did that. I think at our peak, we were selling 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, which would have made us the largest seller of toilet paper in Australia on that day. And uh, in that month, I think one in 20 Australians visited our website, you know, including you know kids who don't use the internet and, and you know, everyone in, in every age demographic. And so, um, that mailing list that we set up when we ran out of stock, we thought we'd get a few thousand people signing up on our wait list to find out when we were back in stock. We ended up with more than half a million people on there, which is kind of mind-boggling and a pretty big challenge for the team. But, you know, our team sort of sat down and said, this is our time to shine. You know, this this is our moment. Let's figure out how to get toilet paper to the most people possible. And so we worked out that we could repack our big 48 roll boxes into two 24 roll boxes and double the number of orders that we could ship. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in the course of a week to allow us to triple the customer service volume um, or capacity. And then we created an invite only version of our website and started to send out emails to just enough people to take our our warehouses and our couriers up to their maximum daily limits of how many orders they could ship. So we kind of ran this secret online toilet paper club for about 6 to 8 weeks with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming through it. And I think we we ended up yeah with more than 600,000 people being invited to that club before we we turned everything back on in in May.
0: It's such a great news story on every level because by doing this and being successful, there's more money to give away. And so it's a really exciting thing. Can I just pick up on the team piece that you talked about, the culture and team and purpose? We often hear people spout the purpose of an organisation, but you have what's known as a perfect glass door score. And there's not many companies that can say that that's part of their, their makeup, but there's usually someone who's disgruntled giving a review at some stage about an organisation. Can you tell me a bit about the sense of people and culture that you have there at Who Gives a Crap?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. It sort of ties into to the pandemic as well. I think um, I'll come back to that. But, you know, the way that we think about culture is culture being very closely tied to happiness. And so when people are their most happy, they're their most helpful, they're most resilient, they're most productive. And so we really see culture and happiness going hand in hand. And we subscribe to, to Dan Pink, um, who's got a book and an amazing um, TED Talk we subscribe to his theory that happiness in the workplace comes from three pillars, which are autonomy, so setting clear goals and then getting out of the way of people to allow them to achieve them. Mastery, so working on a core skill set that someone really cares about developing. And purpose, and that's the you know the third pillar, and, and purpose working for the greater good. We have that as part of our DNA. And so a big part of what we do is think about how we connect what our team are doing in their day-to-day work. To the greater purpose and the, you know, this the impact that we have um, in terms of what we do building toilets and access to sanitation. And so we um, spent a lot of time kind of working with our team to make that connection clear. And so I think in the pandemic, that became really clear. You know, if we executed on this plan and brought many new customers through our business, it would result in this big donation come end of financial year. And so our team were you know, highly engaged in the work they were doing. We had really clear goals. We were working autonomously and people were working on skill sets that they loved working on, the mastery. And the purpose was really clear. If we if we got through this, we'd make a big donation, which come June 30 ended up being more than five million Australian dollars. And so, yeah, I think we're really lucky to kind of have purpose as part of our business. Um, but I think every business can, can find what that purpose is. And if you can find that in your business and, and find that in yourself and in your role and how your role ties to that, it's incredibly powerful. The other thing that we do is we we also were very lucky to be able to take our team into the field to see the work of our partners. And so every second year, we do a, a whole company trip into um, an area where our partners work. So two years ago, we went to Cambodia and saw WaterAIDS work in some of the more remote regions of Cambodia with 36 team members at the time. 16 of them came down with food poisoning and so probably got a little bit more closely affiliated to to the problem that we're trying to solve. Definitely a team bonding experience with some shared rooms there. And this year we were supposed to do the same thing in in India, hopefully without everyone getting sick with 70 or so people. But we had to cancel that one with, um, you know, travel shutting down, which was a little bit unfortunate.
0: I'm curious about the future of NGOs. I think that there's been enormous disruption from the, as you mentioned, the philanthropy model to much more of a build a business and give the money away or build more businesses through that process. Is that just going to continue to grow now in your mind? Or is there something else that we need to be mindful of in the future of giving back and doing good?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things to unpack there. So, you know, the first is kind of the source of funds. And so our belief is that, you know, the philanthropy market is is there and it's it's great and it does a good job, but it's not very scalable because to double the size of the amount of, you know, giving that happens, we have to ask everyone who gives money to give twice as much forever. Like that's a very hard thing to do. And so our focus is on let the philanthropy market continue doing what it does well, but also tap into you know the money that changes hands in the economy and start siphoning some off the top of that into the organizations that are doing great work so that's how we think we can scale the funding element and then the other part of you know for having the most impact is what happens when that money is donated and so our belief there is that you should award based on track record so you find organizations that have got a track record of doing exceptional things and so you award based on on the proof of what they've done in the past and then um, give unrestricted funding so similar to you know funding a business or being a shareholder in a you know a public company you don't tell them how to allocate your money because they're the experts you allow them to allocate your money in the way that they see most fit because their track record says that they're better at it than you are and so they're kind of the principles of how we engage in giving and, and what we think is the you know the two sort of core pillars of of really good giving there's a lot of other stuff that kind of goes into it as well. But they're, um, yeah, they're they're kind of two of the main things that we think about.
0: Before we finish, there's two things I want you to share with us. One is a couple of tips for how we can all get involved, because not all of us have got the business skills or the necessary even ideas to give and and to create like you have. And secondly, can you help listeners understand why you sat on a toilet for 50 hours?
1: (laughs) You know, I heard someone I, I really respect recently talk about there's three ways to make change. One is to be a billionaire like Bill Gates who can, you know, move mountains with their wealth. And I don't think anyone listening is going to be one of those or maybe a couple, but probably not. The other is to to get into government and be someone who has a lot of influence in government. And that's very hard to do as well. There's only a few people that can can do that. And the third way is to be one of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals who make a very small change in what they're doing every day which when you add that up over millions and millions of people leads to a very big change. And so what I'd encourage everyone to think about is how you can make small changes in your everyday lives because every dollar that you spend is a vote for the the future of the world that you wanna live in. And that's a very powerful concept, but even more so when you think about that change that happens by supporting businesses like ours who make a difference, the whiplash that comes from that can change an industry. So if enough people buy our toilet paper, we will change what the other big incumbents do for their sourcing to more sustainable materials because they start to see that the world cares about those things. And so you can be a part of change by, you know, spending your dollars more wisely and using them to be part of that whiplash that can change an entire industry. So that's kind of how I'd encourage people to to get involved, become a, you know, a slightly more conscious consumer in in a way that makes sense for you. And then I think the other thing is you know, why did I sit on a toilet for 50 hours? That's a great question. So that was actually, we kicked off our very first crowdfunding campaign back in 2012. We realized we were crowdfunding literally the most boring product in the world. We're talking about toilet paper, right? This is not a a sexy tech product and we didn't have a huge cult following behind us. And so we knew that we had to get people's attention by doing something you know, great to, to make it really interesting. And one of the guys working on the campaign was very smart and said, let's shoot the crowdfunding video with you sitting on the toilet and you should pledge to not get off it until you've pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. And so we launched the campaign video at 6am on a Tuesday morning with me sitting on a toilet, you know, on a live feed. We thought it would hopefully take 12 hours to to wrap everything up and get that 50000 in the bank. But yeah, it ended up taking 50 hours. And I think I, I stayed awake for 48 of them. So was pretty um pretty brutal i i occasionally get pain in my left leg when i sit down in the wrong position for too long
0: (laughs) (laughs) look simon griffiths thank you so much for sharing and inspiring us today about giving back and being able to change the world with one roll of toilet paper at a time
1: yeah thank you it's been great to be here thanks for having me
0: Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Mataloff. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Fast Track Podcast.